0: you know but if you're in Malaysia, you say oh Mm. I slapped this guy because he told me women belong in the kitchen like they would think I'm the crazy woman that is like acting out or something
1: yeah yeah I've gotten a lot of trouble for talking back to adults that (laughs) aren't really behaving Uh (laughs) I love that for you yeah it's a tough path because like your mom would always be like why like why did you damage the relationship yeah it's always about the relationship right but then it's just like um they risk damaging this relationship first. Exactly. (laughs) Welcome to Proudly Asian, a podcast series that tells bold and proud stories of Asians by Asians. My name is Isabel, your podcast host, and I'm here to find stories that challenge biases we all face every day. There's never just one way to look at Asians. This podcast will take you through a deep dive into the life stories, struggles and triumphs of young Asians around the world. On today's episode, we have Ambi Sun and Shah Ruz, an artist-designer duo from Malaysia, who are the creators of an oracle deck highlighting mythology and folklore from Southeast Asia. They join us to talk about famous folktales in Southeast Asia and how they aim to create works that unite cultures and fight for social inclusion, especially for people with disabilities. Welcome back to Prattly Asian and welcoming you all back to our brand new season four as well. I hope everyone had a great summer break and that you're easing into the last quarter of the year. So for this episode, we have two very special guests who are joining us from completely different places. So without further ado, we'll welcome them in Sun and Sha Welcome to Prattly Asian. Can you tell us where you are joining us from today okay hi i'm Sharus.
2: uh i'm from malaysia kuala lumpur specifically um i a lot of people seem to forget that we exist in between thailand and singapore and there was this one time where somebody went oh yeah malaysia that's in singapore right and i'm like uh-huh sorry so so yes uh malaysia touted as truly asia and the butt of a lot of political jokes at the moment, so.
0: So I'm Malaysian, but I'm currently based in Toronto, Canada. Uh, but I'll be back in Melbourne, Australia next year. So Melbourne, Australia is basically my home base. And I'm just kind of like going places and stuff.
1: Wow so we have everyone from very different time zones we have Sun from Toronto and then we have Shah from Malaysia and definitely we'll get into the part where you know like how is it living in you know all the cities and places that you've lived so far but for us to get into the conversation there's this set of questions that we ask every single guest of ours which you guys covered part of it during the brief introduction earlier but why don't we get started with the question then tell us about your background Who are you? What are you? And where did you grow up? Son. Oh, I thought you are starting. <laughs> Me? Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. The extrovert starts first. <laughs>
2: um who, who am I? So I'm Shaw. I I did a whole bunch of stuff. I'm one of those people who just interned for fun. Uh I've I'm also very privileged to be able to do that. Uh, I did law for a while. I um, did a whole bunch of, don't, don't do A-levels, never, never do A-levels. It's a waste of time. Um, And then I went into interior design after law, because that's what I wanted to do initially, Uh, but you know, parents, uh, they're like, oh, you're disabled. So maybe you should get a degree in something that you would be better suited to. And I'm like, but, but architecture. So I went into interior design after a lot of um, meandering. Um and then I am now in comms for a particular NGO that I will not speak about. Um and I'm doing this this thing with Sun, this beautiful thing, compiling stories from Southeast Asia, and she's doing a ter- uh Oracle deck. Sorry,
0: not terror. So, yeah. But um what about Sun? Um Sun so Sun. I am a freelance illustrator. Uh, I was trained as a graphic designer and illustrator, um, mostly worked in corporate for graphic design for a while, um, did a lot of packaging design, I actually really like packaging design so um, that's why when I create my works like the boxes are very important to me because I think like I have a tendency to obsess over like oh shiny paper, does paper sheets really nice, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so now I'm doing mostly freelance illustration. I do book covers from uh, a lot of indie authors right now. Um, and I'm also working on, this is my major project for the year. So Sha and I, were attempting to finish it. Our deadline is coming out soon. So I have about 20 <laughs> illustrations left to do. And my tablet just died on me. So it's like the, the world is challenging me. And I'm like, all right, what well, I'm going to do <laughs> I'm just starting to start drawing traditionally again or something. Um, well, yeah, that's that's kind of why I do. I don't know if I answer all of your questions.
1: Yes, yes. We'll definitely talk more about your creative journey as well. But I hear you. I swear, like, it's almost every time when it's the most critical time. That's when, like, <laughs> technology dies on you. It happens a lot during our recordings on Pratly Asian. Oh, no. <laughs> I know um, you guys are collaborating, working on this very exciting project, right? But then just out of curiosity, how did you meet? Um, it was m- one of my first few
2: days in Melbourne because I went there to study interior design, right? Um, and I met a friend while signing up to Vodafone. And it was, it was, you know, a very typical meeting of Malaysians. You hear an accent and you're like, okay, I hear that accent. So you, you slide next to them and you're like, hey, Malaysian... No. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And I'm like, where from? Subag. <laughs> you know, no, he's not subag. Titi something like that. And I was like, oh, I'm bugs And then we became friends. And then eventually you make um, it sound like
0: a meat cute or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think
2: my meetings with all my friends are meat cute. I love them to bits. Just not that way. So anyway, <laughs> uh Eventually I got to meet his uh then girlfriend who is Sun's sister. And then and then I just infiltrated all their friend groups because that's how I do.
1: So that's Shah's version of how you guys met. Um Sun, does that match what you remember? <laughs> all I remember
0: is that I know Shah through a dinner. I think we had we met through a dinner, right, at this Italian restaurant with a bunch of people. Um I have that- I
2: still have pictures of that. Because we have um, a picture of Joe, uh, one of our friends, getting absolutely harassed by one of the waiters. Uh, it's was it Ligon Street?
0: Yeah, is it the one with a spider? The guy with the spider?
2: I don't remember a spider, but he was wearing a clown mask.
0: Okay, like there are too so many So he was just incidents.
2: going around to each table, <laughs> scaring people. And Joe hates clowns.
1: I was just like, what spiders? What clowns? <laughs> it sounds just... like a very eventful night
0: <laughs> it's it's, a, it's like a italian street down in uh, melbourne and they have like pretty good italian food and stuff so i think people can get kind of rowdy there because there's bars and stuff oh, yeah. but um so what happens is that because i i feel like i'm kind of introverted and what i go to an event and the extrovert adopts me so that's how i met sha in my memory
1: <laughs> right so like between you girl son you are the introvert and sha is the extrovert right <laughs> pretty much That's nice. That's nice. That makes a really good duo. But now I want to zoom in on a little bit um, about, you know, your lived experiences growing up in different places. Because, Shah, you obviously grew up in Malaysia. Um, Son, did you spend some time in Malaysia before ending up in Melbourne? Or how did everything work out for you?
0: Yeah, so actually, I spent most of my years in Malaysia. Like, my family is back in Malaysia still. Um, I only left around 18 to do my design degree. And part of the reason of the leave is that in um, Malaysia in specific, I don't want to speak for other countries, but in Malaysia in specific, like design and art is seen as a very kind of low-class job. So um, they don't pay you very well. Uh, one time, I think I remember applying for an internship in, in a Malaysian firm, and then they offered me like 500 ringgit, which is like, I, like, I don't know how much that is. Like, hundred dollars or something or less. Wow. Yeah. Um, but basically like you don't really get a lot of kind of respect. Like a lot of talking about like, oh, you have to like admire me or anything, but the basic respect is not there because a lot of times people will just ask you for free stuff. They think your labor is not worth the money. Um yeah, so because of that I had to go overseas. It's one of those things where it's just like, oh unfortunately I can't make it work here. Or if I do make it work here, I will suffer a lot for no reason. Um, while in overseas at least if you do it as a profession you still get paid like um, at a proper rate Um, you have people would be like oh you're a designer that's really cool not like oh you're a designer wow you couldn't make it to science you can't do math (laughs) that that was a
2: big thing yeah essentially like uh, in school Um, pretty much you would go into different uh, what what would you call it like streams of education so a lot of the straight A students will end up in the science stream. And if you sort of fail to make it there, you'll end up in the art stream. Um, it's, it's a really horrible mentality to still have 200 years after the Industrial Revolution when we're moving so much into uh, mechanization and all these things. Like we haven't really gone out of the ideology that uh, we're here as laborers, which is very strange. So if you're Asian and you're not going into the big five, I can, at the top of my head, remember for only at the moment, which is lawyer, doctor, engineer, uh, accountant, and the other one, which I can't remember. Uh, essentially, you're not good enough because that makes the big bucks because what are people trying to do here, essentially, as a third world country is move up uh, the the capitalist ladder. So as an artist, I I find that when it comes to art, people forget that the really prominent artists had time, had a lot of money for themselves, and had somebody else do the emotional labor, and you know housekeeping and stuff that allowed it that uh, that allowed that afforded them the ability to pursue art, to pursue poetry, to pursue writing, which doesn't translate if you're in Asia, which is very strange
0: yeah and also like just uh yeah, so what you were saying sha like um the whole splitting into science stream and art stream thing that was always very i think it was embedded in my mind that if you can't do science then you get shoved into arts that was until i went to um university because i went to scat in uh, atlanta and i found out some of my professors used to come from science degrees i knew like a friend who was in brown university doing like um some sort of bioscience and she quit because she's just like oh yeah no like i can do it i just don't want to do it exactly and i did art instead and it's just like oh my god smart people do art too (laughs) it's not just that you have to do art Chris. you you're dumb like yeah and then after like meeting all of them it just like opened my mind like okay maybe doing art is like you're not choosing to do it because um you're dumb and you can't go into science or something because like there's so many people like people underestimate how many people in uh, arts right now that are successful have a past degree in medical or in engineering and that kind of stuff and I'm just like if only you knew like what they did before but they chose this because like art is very it's kind of like a passion like
1: if you you really fall in love with it and you just have to kind of risk it all to do it yeah, that's true. And I think for a lot of people who ended up in design and arts, like no matter what they were doing in their previous lives, they would always feel that kind of like pull into design and art. It's just kind of like a calling that you had to answer. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to live that very authentic life. So it's just kind of sad in a way that in a certain Asian countries, like being in art would still be defined as like failures.
2: True, true, true.
1: Yeah, and obviously, we talked about how you both sort of eventually decided that art or like design is something that you wanted to pursue professionally. But this question is specifically for you, Shah, as well. I know that you previously told us that you've been living with a condition of spinal muscular atrophy. And that's also a condition that really defined a lot of lived experiences that you've had along the way. So can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: So spinal muscular atrophy is a degenerative neuromuscular disease. So imagine your brain as a distribution box and your spinal cord, a series of wires that connect to your muscles. So what spinal muscular atrophy does is you are lacking in a particular protein that increases the longevity of those wires. And as those wires degrade and um, disappear, your body doesn't doesn't feel the connectivity to the muscles anymore and decides oh they probably don't need this muscle anymore so we're just going to absorb that into the body again which means um i get weaker progressively and there's nothing that can be done to stop it uh there's a few treatments but right now the treatments accessibility and cost will eat me out of house and home so i would rather not live in a box (laughs) So that's that's uh, a thing. The I think the other thing is when it comes to disability, a lot of people view disabled people from a certain lens of pity. Uh, and I again, I have to bring up my privilege in that who I grew up as um, and the family that I grew up in afforded me the ability to come into my own disability or not. So uh, there's... There's a lot of things that I am afforded that other people are not. I I can speak well. I present myself well. And that ability actually shoves the disability into a lot of people's faces, whether they like it or not. And I enjoy it. Um, it's it's a very strange place to be, especially as a disabled person, when people are like, oh, don't cause a fuss. If you're Asian, right, you have to show face. I, I never, I don't. Like showing face, like if you piss me off that day, I'm I'm sorry, man, I'm yelling at you. So um, that that also informed me in my seven years of working in interior design because I worked hand in hand with uh, another friend of mine and a lot of contractors. And contractors are old men who don't trust a lot of other people, or or they lord it over you. So when they see like a young woman. They're like, oh, she doesn't know anything. I'm just going to try and BS her. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We we don't work that way. And what's worse is a young woman in a wheelchair. Oh, she really doesn't know anything. And I'm like, oh, oh, we're doing this now. Okay. Uh, there's, there's a certain enjoyment that comes from being so combative. Just naturally combative. Ready to fight. <laughs> yeah, I'm... I'm I'm in like there are some days where I wake up and I'm like, I'm hoping somebody pisses me off today. (laughs) Like, just just get on my bedside, park the wrong way and I will yell at you. That kind of thing. Um, Because Malaysia, um, first world facilities, technically, first world buildings, not really facilities. We don't really do the whole um, universal accessibility yet. Uh, We're working on it. Um, but really third world mentality through and through.
1: So I know that you also lived in Melbourne, right? So compared to, you know, like Malaysia, do you think uh, Melbourne or like any other cities are a lot more accessible? Like how do they compare?
2: When it comes to Melbourne, I do miss the ability to just get on a train. But the caveat is um, you have to go to the front of the train, like right at the front. And if it's raining, God bless like you're fighting with the rain, you're hoping that the train stops in time for you to just to wave your hands. Cause there's no button that says I need help under the shade, which is such a strange thing. Like it's so easy to implement, but they don't. Um, but that is a far cry for what we have in Malaysia generally. Like in, in Malaysia, if you want to go on a train as a disabled person, as a person in a wheelchair, you're like, I hope the lift works at the next stop because if you go in and the lift works you're like okay cool i'm on a train now but when you reach your destination and the lift doesn't work you still have to get across to the other platform to go back and if that doesn't work uh, i guess i live as a train troll now
1: this is where I, I, huh, <laughs> okay. It's like not even, you don't even know when you'll be able to get out. It's just like whenever you get out. <laughs> exactly, and and
2: people are very blase about this. Um, So I go out with a motorized scooter. Some people go out with a motorized wheelchair that is 145 kilos, minus 17 kilos. The human is heavier than the machine. But people insist, especially if they're, strapping young lads they're like oh we can carry you and I'm like nobody is carrying me do not touch me that way because if we fall I'm not saying if I fall if we the collective falls we're both gonna break something that's true and the wheelchair is very expensive oh yeah wow so so it's this idea of if there's no ramps if the lift is broken it's all right we will help you we the human I'm like if we fall who is going to help you? (laughs)
1: Suddenly you're disabled for three months. Like nobody really thinks of that. That's true. And I like how you just pointed out like in Malaysia, you guys almost got like first world facility, but then the majority of the people are still, you know, living in that like third world mentality, right? Now I want to shift the gear to Sun and ask, does that also reflect your lived experience as well? Do you feel like that maybe perhaps any sort of like bias that you have faced during your life? Was it Kind of like worse in Malaysia, or is it worse in Melbourne, or anywhere else that you've been?
0: I think that's kind of one of those. I think for like us, like for Asian women, it's you 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 leave one bias and you experience another sort of bias, yes. <laughs> so like it's different. I think in Asia, like when I was in Malaysia, mostly it's um my lived experience. Um, the environment of my own name was very sexist and was very um. A, like should i should say kind of ableist where um they kind of ignore people with disability. Um if you have any mental health, good luck to you. Um if you're a woman, like don't worry about it. Like you don't need to succeed at your career because like eventually you want to have kids, you want to have babies. So um this job is not important. Um I've heard like friends of my dad like casually just saying like, oh you know men are like teapot, women are like teacups. And I was just like, oh, you know, like, women are like pencil sharpeners, and men are like the pencils. <laughs> I can also come up with some really stupid thing to say, like, um, it's just this really like, very silly, degrading things that they say. And a lot of times when they say it, and if you get upset about it, then they will always slap you with the, it's just a joke, la. like, it's just a joke, man, don't be so serious. <laughs> just a joke. Like, <laughs> it's not a joke. Um. Yeah, I find it funny that they have the audacity to say this to like another person with like four daughters. I'm like, cool, like, and you're okay with him saying that? Like, that's 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 all right with you? Like, um, but like, Sha say, like, a lot of things in Asia was that you have to give face, so you just don't say anything because you would rather keep the peace and let someone say something terrible. Um, so that's the kind of experience in Asia in regards to sexism. And also like being an artist, um, we mentioned before earlier, where there's this bias that, oh, you're an artist, you can't make it work as a scientist or like a math student whatever. Um, and then in Melbourne, a lot of it is just straight out racism. So um, having lived there, actually, I think initially the first few times, I didn't even really register what was happening because I think it was too dense to understand fully. I was like, oh, that happened. And I'm like, okay. Um, but the worst case for me was like one time I went to a gelato store in a really nice neighborhood in Melbourne, and then I was getting ice cream, and a bunch of teenage boys like ran in. They kinda circled me. When I say circle me, they just, it just run circles around me and they started screaming Ching Chong Ling Wang" and they ran off. But a lot of these incidents, they the people who do it always try to be very sneaky because they know they're doing something wrong. So they would do something like that. Then they'll run off really quickly and you are just left there like, what just happened? Like, did I experience that? <laughs> like, um, But like I said, I think like, I don't really let it affect me too much because half of the time it's just like, all right, cool. This happens. Um, if I live in Asia, I'm going to deal with a lot of, another form of like biasness. If I live in here, I'm going to have another form of biasness. I still rather live in a country where I can have a living wage um, in my profession. <laughs> True.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just, in a way, it's so sad because, like, we don't want to specify, like, race or, like, ethnicity, but then really, like, Asian women are facing a lot of biases left right and center and then in a way you also had to like shift your own mindset to be like oh even with all the racism that's going on in Melbourne it's still better being here than being in Malaysia like we always have to kind of like adjust it that way it's like oh we're already lucky this is not the worst it's really funny because I think
0: that because the people who um do racist things to me are strangers so I think I don't feel as affected because I'm like I don't even know them I don't care but if I'm in Malaysia, the people who say sexist things to me, sometimes it's like a relative or like um, a friend of your parents or like an older generation where you're not supposed to talk back to them. And then you just have to hold it in. That's true. And I think that's even worse for me because I just let it fester. I'm like, oh, you can't tell them off. You can't tell them all. Don't yell at them. Don't yell at them. That's right. That's yeah. right. So I think like mentally, the living in Asia, having someone you know or like someone who knows someone, who know, you, know someone you know, tell you something like that, it's even worse than having a stranger on the street call you a slur or something because I'm just like, all right, bye bigot. Like, I'm going to go eat ice cream now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it's probably just easier if you just flip them off and um, you have, have no consequences. Like <laughs> yeah. no aunties or uncles will tell you off.
0: Because <laughs> like, if, I, if I flip them off or if I yell at them in um, Australia, most of the time the government will be on, like the law is on your side. You know, but if you're in Malaysia, you say, "Oh, Mm. I slapped this guy because he told me women belong in the kitchen." Like they would think I'm the crazy woman that is
1: like acting out or something. Yeah, yeah, I've gotten a lot of trouble for talking back to adults that (laughs) aren't really behaving. Uh (laughs) I
0: love that for you.
1: Yeah, it's a tough path because like your mom would always be like, "Why? Like, why did you damage the relationship?" Yeah, it's always about the relationship, right? But then just like um. They risk damaging this relationship fast. <laughs> exactly, I I really don't understand
2: why they would allow. Okay, they they value daughters or children essentially as such, uh, much more lower than their they value like lateral relationships, like mm-hmm. uncles to uncles, aunties to aunties. But when you're their own child, it's it's such a A strange paradigm to live with. Because you hear stories about parents protecting their children, right? Going, oh, how could you do that to my son? How could you do that to my daughter? And then estranging themselves from the uh, individual that, that affected their child. And in Asia, if you get angry and tell off an adult who is your parents' friend, suddenly you're at fault and they have to show face. They have to be like, oh, sorry, my daughter, she's she's like that. She's a firecracker, you know, that kind of thing. And you're like, whoa, whoa, the dude just called me fat in front of your face. I am the child of your loin. <laughs> what are you doing?
1: Yeah. It's like, how about you consider behaving your own mouth? <laughs> exactly. You,
2: you should scold this other person. Um, And I say fat like it's the easiest thing that I can think of right now. But there's so many things they they attack you with, uh, mm-hmm. especially as, in, as a woman, they'll be like, oh, you don't have to think so hard, la. you know, you're a girl, you're just going to end up making babies anyway. And you're like, what? How could you say that? That's like sexual harassment already. Um, oh, my God. The amount yeah. of sexual harassment you get as a woman, as a young lady, I'm no longer a young lady. I'm like, I've crossed the threshold into they don't bother me anymore because i'm old <laughs> you're still young sir. you're so funny growing up as a teen and having these kind of remarks is it's just wild the stuff that they say you're like
1: you know you sound like a pedo right you know at sunset right they will always be like why so serious it's just a joke if no one finds it funny it's not a joke exactly <laughs> It's
2: it's wild.
1: I feel like this can go on for another episode. I need <laughs> yeah, to bring you girls back. And then we'll just talk <laughs> about all the pressure that women, Asian women have to face. And also the funny thing is when we were talking about like the adults being rude, right? Mm-hmm. And then we are actually already adult women ourselves. And then we still have to see them as adults. Yeah, you're never on the same level as them. As long as they're like two or
2: three years older than you immediately They're on a different strata. And you're like, you are disrespecting me, sir or madam. How could you say that we're almost the same
1: age? What? This is not going to make it to the final episode. But then (laughs) I still remember for the first episode of season three, we um, invited this Korean-American podcaster. And then like... He said it in a very, basically what he said was just, oh my God, I'm sorry. Like, just because your parents had sex with each other two or three years before my parents did. So now I have to listen to you. Now you have authority over me. Uh, Fuck off. Uh. That's like the best line. (laughs) That's so funny. Because for Korean culture, it's also the first thing that they introduce themselves are like, oh, I was born in this year. And then that's how they identify who is more senior than the other person. I find that so strange. Um, They also include,
2: uh, I I guess, the day they were conceived. Because you know how we count ourselves like, you were born and then you turn one. But to them, they turn two.
0: yeah. Yeah, because you were considered a year old in the womb. Like, yeah, you yeah. start
1: growing in the womb. Yeah, I I found that so fascinating. I can imagine them kind of like competing with each other. So like, like, my parents conceived me first, first. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so this is why you need need to listen to me. It's <laughs> <That's> so stupid. <laughs> All right, let's take a <laughs> let's take a breather. We still have the oracle card to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um. Yeah, I mean, like this whole conversation can go on for another episode. And if you guys, our listeners, like it, we're definitely going to bring back Sun and Shah. We're going to continue on with this conversation because this can never end, as long as Asian women are still facing this kind of bias all around. But the other part of this conversation is... um, So you girls are going to launch the Oracle Deck project called Tales and Oracles of Eleven Mythology from Southeast Asia, right? It sounds very, very exciting when you first mentioned to me and when you first showed some of the visuals of the Oracle Deck how it's going to end up looking like. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, where did the idea came from?
0: So um, the project itself actually is already funded on Kickstarter. Um, We are now doing pre-orders for it and um we're very excited to get it finished when we when i started collecting everything for this um i actually was reading a lot of mythology at that point i was reading a lot of greek mythology and north Norse mythology and i found these books just sitting on bookshelves on major bookstores and i'm just like wow this is really cool why don't southeast asia has like a version of this because we have so many mythologies and we have so many folklores, and I think locally we do have books with them locally. However, you don't see them on an international basis, and I think it's just a difficulty in obtaining them and uh, getting the right translations for them. Like Sha can talk a bit more about this later, um, but yeah, because of that, I was I just thought you know what, like I don't see it. I'm just gonna do it um, because. That's kind of how my personality is. It's just like, oh, I don't have the thing I want. I'm just going to make it. But I was far enough to realize that I can't write very well. So I said, hey, Sha, you're a D&D campaign mas- dungeon master. You can write stuff. You can weave tales. Like, I think I need your help. And also, Sha is a... Ch- when Ever since I knew Sha, she always came across to me as someone that's very thoughtful and very knowledgeable you can just talk to her and she would write you essays like she would speak to you paragraphs and essays on just like a niche topic and i really like that um whenever i ask for something like i know that she can like give me like a really good answer or at least be interested enough in the topic to go find the answer wow so
1: she's stronger than chat gpt yes oh no and more accurate
2: (laughs) and more accurate (laughs) than i can make pasta (laughs) i guess
1: now I know if I need a new episode idea, maybe I'll email Shaw as well.
0: <laughs> oh my God, please do. Sha, Sha, it's like, she has so much interesting things going on in her brain. I'm just like, you need to go online more, but she doesn't do marketing or social media. So, you know. Oh, I hate
2: social media. There is literally, okay. So I went into comms and one of the interview questions was, um, how do you do social media? And I was like, there's not enough money in the world that can make me do social media. Literally, you can give me like uh, Jeffrey Bezos levels of money, and I'll still be like, No, no, wow, like I hate it so much. And I'm really bad at selling myself, and I'm very lazy. And um, Sun knows this because she does all the social media for uh, TO11, and she's just like oh, I have to get this scheduled. I have
1: to do this. And I'm just sitting there like, no. Well, once again, it means you guys are the perfect duo, right? (laughs) Because Sun gets things going, get the word out, while you are the brain of the project also.
0: (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, go, Sha, go research. (laughs) Go find the obscure stories I cannot find. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I go research.
2: (laughs) But Sun is also an amazing artist, like, um, I, I just know so many talented people when it comes to art. Like I can't draw. My stickmen look weird. My stickman needs to be more joined together and more articulated. And then I see Sun just popping out flowers because she's been doing this for years and years. She's been honing her craft. And I've just been like, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna lay
1: down. Let professionals handle this. Goodbye. It's a superpower being so good at illustrating because like you can essentially create something out of nothing. As long as you can imagine it, as long as you can think of it, you can draw it and you can make it so beautiful as well. So that's the kind of skill that I wish I had as well, son.
0: I, I honestly think like I talk about this all the time, but like um, people don't believe it, but anyone can draw honestly and I think a lot of people think that you have to be able to draw to a master level to be able to kind of articulate your ideas and present a story and to, you know, engage people. But if you really take a look, a lot of people are very engaged and very simplistic drawings. Your um, drawings can just be like, say, like a stick figure. One of the web comics that I read a lot, um, all the artists do is black and white stick figures. Because they, they tell such an interesting story. People are willing to watch it. Um, I give this example as like one of the best-selling manga artists of all times is One Punch Man. And the artist what, um, called One, actually he can't draw at all. And his comic is still super popular and it's like now made into an adaptation and stuff. And not because he's popular, he's slowly training himself to draw better. But if you looked at his original works, it is really just like um, a high schooler did it and stuff like that. But because his story is so engaging that people don't care. And I think a lot of people need to realize this, that um, even artists, like we are very hard on ourselves a lot of times, like I'm the same, I will see something. I'm like, oh, that's like, that's awful. Um, And then people people will tell me like, what are you talking about? This looks done already. I'm like, no, it's not finished. Just like I need to work on it another five hours more or something. so I think our perception of what our abilities are differs from other perceptions of what our abilities are. And at the end of the day, if you can tell a good story, it doesn't matter if you draw stick figures or if you draw a circle um, because people relate to the story way more than they relate to like how pretty something is.
1: Yeah. I also want to follow up on the creative process, like how you both work together, you know, decide on what goes into the deck, right? So walk us through the day to day when it comes to creating this deck. Like how did you select what are the mythology and folk tales that will go into the Oracle and then son, you would go off to do your magic as well. Like how do you guys work together? Um, it.
2: It starts off with selecting stories. The problem is uh, that I encountered when selecting stories is Southeast Asia is predominantly a trade route, if you want to put it in such a way. You have uh, China trade routes, uh, the Silk Road coming in through Indochine, You have India and everywhere else coming in through the trade routes through Malacca and through Indonesia and so on and so forth which brings aside from really 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 amazing food religions so many religions so we have a combination of buddhist mythology uh what what is this um it is called the jataka tales so stories about how buddha was reincarnated over and over again and his reincarnations did good deeds And then you have uh, Hindu mythology from the Ramayana tales and Mahabharata. And then you have Islamic mythology. All of these things baked into one because we have thousands and thousands of years of history with each other. We're warring, we're trading, we're marrying each other. And then we're just sharing everything. The problem is looking for indigenous stories out of all this other intermingling existing stories and it was so difficult because um, that that religion is so baked into our culture uh, I think the easiest way is to see how strong the Hindu myths are endemic towards the Nusantara region so uh, we're, we're gonna split it up to Nusantara region which is the ocean gang and then the Indochin which is the Mekong gang so you have the river gang and the ocean gang right so Mekong Gang has a uh, stronger roots with um, Buddhist mythology. Because you have that Taoist Buddhism, you have uh, all, all the other stuff. And then Nusantara has more Hindu because that's that's essentially how we came about with Majapahit, Vijaya and so on and so forth. Then we just fought with each other. And then the the Islamic, the Muslim traders came in and, and then suddenly we're Muslim. At some point, with the Ottoman Empire, it's it's very confusing, and with that came colonization and the slow and methodic uh, erasure of Aboriginal people and their stories. I think the easiest, um, the easiest, most current uh, example would be Timor Leste or Timor Loresai. How they would prefer to be called, or they initially were called uh, during their independence in two thousand two. Uh, very young, uh, they were taken over by the British, the Indonesians, the Australians, pretty much everyone. And we don't know, we don't know what their stories are. And to find their stories, it was so difficult to find artists who um, consider themselves Timor Lorosai. Timorese essentially to do this with us. It was so difficult. Um, we we actually have two interviews, uh, two recordings of uh a Timor leste artist. And it's there's there's so much information there that I wish I could sit down with her with them and, and just talk about everything. Their stories about their dad, um their Forced emigration, how she is struggling to find their individualities. It's a lot. So Timor-Leste, Timor-Lorea is just one example out of the very, very big pot that we are, essentially. Because um, for some reason, globally, Southeast Asia is viewed from one lens. And that is Tomiam. That's it.
0: There's also Singapore now because of uh, Crazy Rich Asians. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Singapore
2: is technically just little... Little America. Yeah,
0: I am just saying, like on a global scale, if you if you ask people about Southeast Asia, they'll just talk to you about either crazy rich Asians Fair. or Thailand. Yeah, and that's, that's true. Like, I don't think they can even name any of the other countries in Southeast Asia.
1: Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, some of them might get confused as like, yeah. is Southeast Asia also in Asia? Because. People have very narrow definition about what Asians are, most likely East Asians, and then they ignore the entire Southeast Asia as well. So that's a fascinating process, selecting the stories. So, I mean, just out of curiosity, because I must admit that I know absolutely nothing about mythology and folk tales from Southeast Asia, but if you girls could share, you know, some of the most intriguing ones included in the deck. If you want to pick one or two of your favorite. Can you tell us about them? I don't have a favorite, so I'm going to let Sun share hers. Okay, like,
0: my favorite, unfortunately, is not the most intriguing one. It's just the most relatable one. Um, it's a story we're titling Child of the Woods. She's laughing at me. Um, Child of the Woods, from, it's a book tale from Laos, and it's about a girl who basically, during her teenage years, got sick of society and decides to run away into the woods and look with the animals. And I was just like, that's it. This is my story. I'm going to run into the woods. I'm going to escape.
1: Wow. That's such a beautiful story, though. It's like, I think I find it very intriguing. (laughs) Like, I don't know about you. But yeah, so, you know, like through working on the deck, have you sort of learned, you know, what are some of the... um takeaways or learnings that these folk tales are telling us about or even what can people learn about the Southeast Asian cultures I mean it's so diverse but then what can they learn about the region with the folk tales
0: I think from my perspective um when doing a lot of research on the um designs of the clothes and stuff like that I personally learned a lot about the culture the textures um and even some hidden part of history that I never knew about um, just because some of the region just are still like being discovered. um there is an area called what is it something of jars, field of jars, field of jars, I think remember I showed you this picture. I was yeah. researching what um hammers look like in looking up a specific region, and I was trying to research what hammers look like. and I ended up on like, a whole wiki thread about how there's a field in this country just full of giant ceramic not ceramic stone jars and they're like almost human size and they couldn't figure out what they were used for. Um and so theories are being thrown about is it a graveyard, is it ritual sacrifice? But it just recently became a UNESCO site um in 2019 because before that no one was allowed in there due to the fact that it was unsafe, um as they were could still be american bomb in there yeah i was trying to look up um how because different cultures use different tools to make things so i didn't want to draw the wrong thing and then i'm not going with the concept anyway but um a lot of time doing illustrations for this it just leads you down this rabbit hole of like why don't i know about this like there is a re- lake or river in thailand that spits fire sometimes the the mekong river and no one knows why.
2: Yeah, no, nobody knows why. So I only found this out because we were talking to um, one of the Laotians and um, she was telling us about the the fireball festival. And I was like, OK, fireball, that's alcohol, right? And she was like, no, 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 it's not alcohol. Literal balls of fire, of plasma emerge from the river a few days in a year. Wow. And disappear into the sky, right? And no one knows how and why. No one knows how and why. And all the videos that I've seen, it looks fake. Yeah. And then she was like, no, it's real. Like, it looks fake, but it's real. It just emerges. It's like, you burp light from the river.
0: Wow. And I'm like, what? And that's why there's so many dragon stories in Southeast Asia. This is why I think, because we have a lot of, a lot of stories in our books, um, is there's a lot of dragons. I am very happy. I like drawing dragons. So it's just like, yes, another dragon. Let's go. you um, we were asked seriously earlier about like how what, what people can learn from the folktales. And I think like they can really discover a different way of storytelling. Because I think most of the times now, people follow a similar structure when it comes to storytelling. But when it comes to mythology and folklore at the time, people just told stories the way they wanted to tell it. There's no search instructors that they were trained to, to tell it in. So there's no hero's journey or whatever. Sometimes things, it's just like, oh, you made a dragon angry and now she's going to flood your village. That's it. That's the story. Yeah, that's so the story. Make dragons angry.
2: Sometimes you read a story as well. Like you're compiling stories and you read the story and there's no ending. It just, like pretend there's a grandma sitting around the campfire and she's, Chopping vegetables, and she wants you to shut up. So she just tells you a story while chopping vegetables,
1: and there's just no end. And you're like, "What is the point of this story?" There's no making sense of it. There's no over-engineering the story. Exactly. Right? <laughs> it's
2: just it's just old lady ramblings because she wants you to shut up.
1: I'm also curious for son yourself. Like, was there ever like a story that stood out to you that was the hardest for you to visualize or draw?
0: Actually, I just want to say there's quite a bit of them, just because. The way I illustrate things don't necessarily fit in a storybook format. I'm saying this in like a question mark tone because like I'm not really sure if what I'm saying is actually accurate. But because the way we're doing we're doing actually a storybook and a oracle deck. So for people who want to just read the stories and like you know read them to their children and things like that, um, they can just get the stories. But with oracle decks, a lot of it is based on symbology. And for me, as an illustrator, my goal is to extract the main theme from the stories and try to put that into one picture. And I think a lot of the stories that we have, some of them are quite long, and some of them have multiple highlights. And that causes it to be quite difficult to pick and choose because i have I am an illustrator, and like Shah's like basically like, "You do whatever you want." <laughs> so, I have to make the final decision as to what I'm highlighting from the story. Do I highlight the ending? Do I highlight um, the process when something is happening? Do I make everything quite abstract so that I keep elements from certain parts of the story, but it doesn't review everything? Um, do I focus on a person? Do I focus on an object? Because sometimes the object is the important thing or the person is the important thing. So. Um, there is a story that I'm currently illustrating right now. It's about a banana demon. So this is one of my other favorite stories. Um, it's about a guy who's looking for a wife, and he's a banana farmer. And then he was looking for a wife, and then he found a woman in a banana field. And she's just like, oh, I'm so helpless and alone. Please take me home with you. <laughs> and so he's like, oh, this is weird, but I guess I guess I'll take you home with me. And... Somehow, one way or another, he, she just becomes his wife eventually. And at some point, he realized that she was sneaking out at night. And so he tied a rope, not a rope, but like a string around her skirt. And the next day when he woke up, he followed the string and it was tied to a banana tree. And then he found out that, oh my God, it's a demon. It, and the demon's been sucking my blood this whole night. Um... So, shocking! Probably, tell us still better. Um, okay, so,
2: so there's there's a few stuff missing from that story. I urge you to <laughs> yeah.
0: See, like I'm not good at storytelling. You, you tell I, the story.
2: I urge you to get the book to read the whole thing. But essentially, uh, this guy is a farmer. Um, and then one day he wants to chop down a banana tree because you know when you cut down the banana fruit and the heart, it stops producing anything. So you have to chop it down so a new one grows, right? But as he chopped it down. There was a shriek and then he found a lady in the garden and the lady's like, oh I'm lost. I'm lost. I got kicked out of my home. my parents don't want me anymore. Can I please stay in your house? I will do the cooking and the cleaning. I just need a place to stay for one night, just for one night. And then he, he he's a nice guy. he's also kind of dumb. Um, nice guys in all stories are dumb. We know this. I don't, I don't know why that's just the law. Uh, and original he's like, himbo. Original himbo. I'm a fan of himbos, don't get me wrong. <laughs> so so he lets her stay and she immediately like she goes into the house, she starts cleaning the house, and he's like, oh, Okay. As as men are wont to do. It's like, yay, free services. Um goes to sleep. Uh next day, morning comes. He goes, he, he's prepared to be like, OK, you can go on your merry way now. I have I have helped you. And she's like, please, just one more night, one more night, please. I, I cannot go back to my folks. You know, they kick me out. I, I have to I have to consolidate my life. And he was like, oh, OK. And this happens for weeks and weeks and weeks. Until uh, one day he falls in love with her because she's been cleaning his house and cooking his food while he's working but at the very same time all his friends in the village saw him get sicker and sicker like he he's just doing very poorly like he's getting thin, gaunt and then one of his friends was like hey i'm i'm not sure about the lady that lives in your house and he's like of course he gets very offended he's like how dare you say that about my girl right uh A few months goes by. A few weeks goes by. And uh, the the lady's like, hey, I want to get married. But can we do it at night? And he's like, okay, that's a very strange time to do like a wedding party. Okay. Um, Eventually, they got married. He's living in marital bliss. And then the friend said, hey, I need you to do this test. Just because we've been best bros for a really long time. You sell me fruits. I buy your fruits. We hang out. Take this needle and take this thread. In the middle of the night, make sure she doesn't realize you're awake. But when she's doing funny business near you, just tie this to her finger. That's when uh, he woke up the next day and found the the needle in a banana tree. Like, with the what with the F? She chops down the banana tree, blood comes out, a shriek, a scream, then finds out that the woman that he's married to is actually a demon. And now she's dead. And he's
0: no longer sick. Oh, wow. Yeah. So for like a story like that, like how do we illustrate it? There's yeah. so many parts yeah. to it. It's just
1: That's like, true. I w- really wanted to like ask follow up questions. Like, isn't he sad that he killed his wife or, you know, all that? But I realized Sha also said like, there's no making sense of it. Exactly. They- <laughs> Like, where
2: where is the sense here? Like, first of all, why would you let a random woman in your house? And she starts cleaning and cooking immediately. At first, I would be like, sus. Yes, Like, I don't trust. You don't just come into my house for no reason and say you ran away from home. There is no way I'm going to be like, yes, I'm going to let a runaway live in my house. Like, what did you do
1: that made your parents want to kick you out? Like, no, no. No. That's so true. And then she was using the same excuse every day yeah. and weeks on end. So. Exactly. Go home. It's true that he's the dumbest Dumb- man. But the thing is,
2: the, the sad thing is, he's supposed to be a nice guy. He's well-liked in the village. He he sells fruits to people. So people are like, oh, I like vitamin C and I like this guy. So this is good, right? <laughs> it's It's just that he's alone and he has no wife. So I guess man needs a wife that's
1: the takeaway yeah maybe
0: that's the moral of the story like you know don't get so desperate Uh, yeah don't
1: get so desperate that's it (laughs)
0: don't get so desperate
1: (laughs) that's true and as you both mentioned earlier that you know like when you were looking for these tales and all these stories for the research stage for the deck right like you had to interview a lot of people and sometimes it might take you some time to track down some of the locals who could confirm some of these stories. So I'm wondering the whole research process, you know, how long did it take? It would take longer if I didn't abide by the rule of done is better than perfect. (laughs) Maybe that there could be a volume two. There's (laughs) so much.
2: There's so much we didn't put in. So there's four stories for each country. So there's 44 total stories. Um, If we reached our stretch goal, which we didn't, uh, there were there was going to be an additional story for each country. Um, and there's so many other stories in the back burner that didn't make it through the first cut, purely because uh, there was a somewhat similar story from another country or the 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 moral were too similar. Wow.
0: Leah, I think like when Sha me the whole list of everything she found as well, it's just like, all right, now we got to start summarizing these and whittling them down. So it's just for each. Cause I think she definitely picked more than we had like what five or six per country um, that we had to like made
1: the final decision which one should to put <laughs> everything's falling on my head and as Sha was mentioning earlier right some of them might be even too similar I would even be curious to know what countries or what cultures might share some of these similar tales because sometimes for these cultures or countries they might not get along but what they don't realize is oh they might actually share similar origins or similar traits or, or stories without realizing it, right? Okay. Um, one of the stories that I can think of immediately at the top of my head
2: is the Mekong countries, the Interchins. So there is three countries that share a rice goddess story. I I can't remember exactly the story of the rice goddess, but essentially she is the reason why there is rice in that region. And it's shared between three countries. I can't remember. I think it was Thailand. It's Thailand,
0: Cambodia, um, and Laos. I want to say Vietnam. Or
2: Myanmar, Cambodia, and Thailand. It's actually, yeah, It's it's those three. And then you have to really look at historically where were these countries? When did they emerge? For example, Singapore and Malaysia were very, very closely interlinked for the longest time until 1964. And then you have similar uh, stories and foods coming from uh, Borneo, Indonesia, and Malaysia. Again, the N- Nusantara region. Like so many similar stories, sometimes very similar dragons as well. But the the image of it tends to be very different. Um, morality is quite similar as well compared to the Indochines. But it it all boils down to history. Who essentially were the same people at one point and who became different people because a bunch of uh, colonists came in and drew arbitrary lines to make other people happy?
1: That's so true. That's so true. And. I can kind of like imagine there must be because like Asian countries and cultures are so diverse and it will be quite nice if some people could actually kind of bond it's like oh you know that rice goddess as well it's like oh like I know that rice goddess it's just a like a really interesting way to bond and realize that maybe they did not come from places that are completely different like a long, long, long time ago. But before we move on to the next segment, right, for those who get their hands on the Oracle deck, we would like to hear from the creators themselves. Like, what, what will be the best way for them to use the Oracle deck?
0: I think you can definitely use it for inspiration or daily readings. Um, for I'm just going to give a brief explanation of what Oracle decks are because I get asked this question a lot. So in kind of the divination realm, the most popular deck is a terror deck. And it's used, uh, there's 78 cards, and it usually uses a system called RWS, which is the original creator for tarot. Um, And it has a rigid structure. There are certain titles, certain names, um, and every card has a designated meaning. However, in Oracle decks, the meaning is up to the creator's interpretation. It could be as many cards as you want. It could be any meaning, uh, as many meanings as you want. Um, basically whatever you choose um, you can make it into oracle deck so things like affirmation cards or something are very similar in that sense because like it's based on the creator's meaning Um, for me how I like to use them is as a source of inspiration Um, so sometimes I don't really know like oh I don't know what to do Um, and then I'll shuffle one and I'll just take a look and like all right this card is a let say it's a dragon, and it's like flooding a place. All right, what is it telling me that maybe I need to do something that's based on the topic of uh, consequences, or if I'm using it for like, let's say, when I say daily readings, what I use, uh, what I mostly use it for is self-reflection. So if I'm encountering an issue, I'll use the cards and I'll look at either look at the picture, I'll read the book um, to see what the card is saying, and then. I will kind of try to pick my own meaning out of it because I truly believe that a lot of times we already know what is wrong. (laughs) Like, you know in your heart what you need to do and what is wrong. We have
1: the answers within ourselves. (laughs) Yes,
0: but you just need something to prompt you to be like, oh no, like, it's calling me out. It's saying that I should take a break because I have been working for three days consecutively. Oh no, like, yeah. So with cards and oracle cards, my perspective is more so of the, you already know what you need to do, but you need something to prompt you to tell you what to do. Yeah. Um, so that's how I personally would use it. But I know a lot of people use it very differently. Some people like to just do general readings like, oh, what, what, what is um, going to be my mood of the day or stuff? And then they'll use different sets of cards for that kind of thing. Um, but yeah,
1: like, that's how you could use it. All right. It's time for us to move on to the next segment, which is called Record Bias. And in this segment, I'll be asking my guests biased questions that they've got asked at some point in life. And so in this case, different biased questions that Sun and Shah got asked along the way. So Sun and Shah, are you ready? <laughs> yes. Try to mute No, but yes. <laughs> all right why don't we have sha answer all of these very um i I don't even know how to describe them spicy not spicy questions but um first question for you sha do you live in trees oh yeah for sure uh we
2: have uh wi-fi connectivity thanks to the, the the greenery at the top we have 6g six green If you think about it, we also have lifts going from uh, stem to canopy. No, we don't live in trees. What? It's such a funny question that is asked mostly uh, to my friends who live in Borneo. Like, if you live in Kuala Lumpur, it's not so much now, thankfully, because, you know, we're on the map for political reasons. So they're like, oh, yeah, missing plate. Right. You definitely don't live on trees. Um, But in Borneo, it's like, well, do you guys have the tree houses?
1: it's like no where do you get this wow and if they do those are some pretty high-tech trees that they live in absolutely <laughs> again first world infrastructure <laughs> take the the buildings in the lord of the rings where the elves live in the Ooh. trees oh yeah <laughs> oh that would be nice <laughs> and the second question for you Shar. Could I get one? It looks like so much fun. And that's regarding your mobility device.
2: Okay, so I get this question a lot when I'm scooting around. Um, People who don't know me, people who just got to know me, they think it's a nice icebreaker. So they see a mobility device, they're like, oh, that's so cool, I want one. And I'm like, you don't need one. I didn't choose to be stopped by stairs. I don't want this. But if you want one, I guess I could call some friends and we could
1: break your legs. That would be cool. And um, the third question is, I don't know how you do what you do with your disability. I wouldn't be able to. You're such an inspiration. Oh,
2: kill me. This is not just me who encounters it. Anybody who is disabled, anybody... And when I talk about disability, it's not just a physical disability. It can be um, mental health as well. Hearing somebody go up to you and say, I don't know how you do what you do, just tells me that you think my condition is so bad that if you had it, you wouldn't be able to wake up. That tells me more about you as a person than me as a human being. You know what I mean? Like... For, for somebody to look at the condition and just think oh, that is so debilitating. I don't know how to live with myself. I don't know how you live with yourself. So you must be going above and beyond in, the, in this like very inspirational way. Like, oh, you're, you're so great. And I'm like I'm just trying to live. Did you know that in um, uh, the UAE, I think in Dubai, one of those uh, they call disabled people... People with determination. And I'm like, determined to what? Not die? <laughs> That's so rude. <laughs> determined. <laughs> to, like, we don't have to be that determined if everything was equitable. Yes. But really. So, so yes. Um... It, the, the ableism is very very strong no matter what country you go to like every country has this
1: and people tend to be overly politically correct as well so like they try to avoid the d word like disability they don't want to say someone is disabled i mean like you mentioned in the uae they replace it with determination it's just why <laughs> does it make it better it makes it worse like
2: like i said like people with determination like what are we determined to do exactly
1: Mm -hmm. that is not you know what everybody is trying to do anyway some of our previous guests um, who live with disabilities as well they also pointed out people tend to think that people who live with physical disabilities are also like intelligently disabled which is completely not true like they just function like normal people they think like normal people just despite that their physical ability is a bit different i think the worst part
2: is when you're with friends so two things happen one people don't talk to you they talk about you to your friend or they refer to your friend about what you want like if you're ordering they'll go oh what does she want and I'm like yo I can talk in fact I'm the one ordering for everyone else because nobody made a decision at this table I am the primary decision maker (laughs) thank you oh my god um the other thing that happens is people going up to my friend and going, oh my God, you're such a saint to be able to be friends with a disabled person. And then going up to me, you're so lucky you have friends like that. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is happening? Wow. Like this, again, tells me more about you as a human being than me. So rude. Incredibly so. But people don't see it as something rude to them. They're being polite, which I find like,
1: how? Yeah, yeah. I mean, before we move on, I've also seen like people behaving in a way that's like maybe talking to a physically disabled person and then that person's just eating normally. And then the person, like, wow, good job. You were eating. You were able to lift a spoon. I was like, what? What am I witnessing right now? <laughs> Take a look at this. <laughs>
2: Stop. Half the time you're looking at them like, bro, I'm using chopsticks. I'm more dexterous than you at this point. <laughs>
1: all right and um again this can be another episode but during this rapid bias segment we will also direct our questions our fiery questions at sun as well so sun the first question for you is you shouldn't study art you'll die poor
0: yeah it's (laughs) you sha sha probably has gotten this a lot um it's like The idea that if you are an artist, you are going to die a starving artist because the perception of art in Asia is very funny. Like They either see it as like, oh, you will get famous after you die because then your artwork will be in museums, like Da Vinci or something. (laughs) But then when you're alive, you will be poor and desolate and dead or something while completely forgetting that everything they use in daily life is designed by an artist. Like, from your books to your tables to your TV show, like, the UI on your phone, like, everything you use is literally created by an artist and... It's so funny to think that you think that we will die and there are no jobs for normal people (laughs) yeah
1: i mean honestly when all the jobs are replaced by ai it's really (laughs) art and imagination that will not die (laughs) i agree with that
0: i mean now nowadays like there the new the new thing is that everyone's telling me like oh you know you're going to be replaced by ai soon and i'm just saying you're like well they still can't draw hands yet number one number two AI can only generate as good as images as the ones they steal. So, when like I think that a lot of people in, even in making AI has realized if they don't reference a, an artist or use their name really, uh, a lot in their prompts, mm-hmm. um, they the end result of it will not be cohesive or it will not work very well. And so the only thing they can do is to gather data from people that essentially they want to steal from like I don't want to be soft about this because um they are just data scraping and stealing from a lot of living artists without consent and now like because they started doing that and major corporations see that there's no major pushback so now Facebook can now steal your data for AI um because no one's pushing back you know essentially
1: yeah and just like how i don't know if you guys watch black mirror but for the latest season that's the one that models off of a famous streaming service and that's also yep. kind of like the essential issue that sparked the whole like strike in hollywood as well okay. and then the next question is can you draw for me for free no nothing sorry so. um can you <laughs> sorry i asked can you draw me for free? It's okay, because both questions, I've to <laughs> see so
0: many of them. That's true. <laughs> That's just like, can you draw this for me? Like, it's very easy, right? Like, I really need this. The worst thing is that when you have, like... This this didn't happen to me, but it happened to someone I know, where their uh, family members say, Hey, I promised this auntie you'll draw this thing for them. So can you do it? And it's like realistic building, rendering, or something for their children's wedding and i'm just like are you kidding me (laughs) like how long do you think this is gonna take like a minute like are you joking this is like at least like two days of work and they would a lot of people assume that it is so easy to do art because every time you go to like a gallery you see someone say i can't do that Um, and this is mostly in regards to, like, a lot of abstract artwork. And while I am not, like, the biggest abstract artwork fan, I also know that it takes a lot of understanding of color, composition, space, theory, and, um, overall concept to execute this kind of stuff. Because some of the abstract artists have to work with very complex, um, paint, pigments, and material to create the illusion they're trying to make.
2: No, here's, here's the thing. Like, every time somebody says, oh, I could do that, um, but the answer is always, wait, you did it. Somebody else did. And now you're taking credit for something that you didn't even
1: do. Yeah. To replicate that. They
0: to you wouldn't even it be able to, to do it for free. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Next time, whenever an auntie asks you to do artwork for free, then your response should be like, okay, I'll send the quotation in your way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was a very informative Rapid bias segment. Thank you so much for answering all the questions. And now for us to close out the episode. So we talked a lot about the Oracle deck that you guys are producing. So when is it coming out? And for our listeners who would like to get their hands on one. So how can they go about getting one? It is
0: currently available on my shop now as a pre-order. So if you go to slash shop so it's dot t.com.
1: Don't worry I'll link it in the uh, episode description.
0: Excellent. <laughs> so like it's available there as a pre-order. Um if you do the pre-order now you will get a discount compared to when it goes out fully on retail price. Um we it will we're expecting it to ship April
1: 2024. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. And finally, one last question for both of you. For Sun, what does it mean to be proudly Asian? And for Shah, what does it mean to be proudly Malaysian to you?
0: I think being proudly Asian is just not shying away from your heritage because I think that there is a tendency for us to adapt to the cultures that we've been in. For example, for me, like I moved to a lot of different countries. Most of them are western ones and there's always a need to conform to society uh at least the culture and to you know oh maybe like when i when i go to work i shouldn't bring a certain type of food or something because people would think it's weird um or like if i behave in some way like i always have to be very cautious of like oh how are they going to perceive me are they going to think that i'm backwards or something uh because it's not something they've Are used to in this culture um but for me being proudly asian is just not conforming to that kind of stuff and just do what i always do um which is to embrace like our culture of food and like even now i think more so than ever i am trying to embrace like my cultural identity of like being southeast asian um and that's why i even wanted to make this book because is something that I'm very proud of, like coming from Southeast Asia. We have such a diverse range of like stories, countries, people, culture, like, and all of these stuff. Like, even though they inspire many big Hollywood productions, they never actually get featured um as highlights of their own. And I think for me, being probably Asian is trying to change that. Amazing. And Shah?
2: Okay. Um, this is such a tough question. Everything that San said, I ditto. Um, Being proudly Malaysian is also being proudly brown, Um, being unabashedly true to everything that I want to do, everything that we are as a community, and telling people that Malaysia is not just Malay, it's Chinese, it's Indian, it's everyone else as well. We're multicultural, we're multiracial, and everything you hear on the news is slander and propaganda, except for the politics politics is garbage. Um we'll <laughs> fix that eventually. But also just this idea of of Southeast Asia not just Malaysia being a monolith that we are one and the same is such a such a dangerous idea for other people to have because again broad brush not even different color just one color. And I I, I refuse to be, to a certain extent, the model minority when it comes to stuff like this. I'm going to eat all the durian. I'm going to eat all the stinky food in front of you. I'm going to make you eat the stinky food with me. And you will like it. And then you will pick up my idiosyncrasies as well. Like the amount of friends I know who are not Asian who come here or I have been around them who starts using the, the suffix lah. Like just no lah, like this lah. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's just so fun to see it infect other people, and they use it correctly as well. It warms my heart. Oh, that's nice. But yeah, being being proudly Malaysian is understanding that we're not everyone. Yes, we we do have a rubber tongue in that. If I speak to a British person, I'll speak more British. If I speak to an American, I'll speak I'll sound like an American. Um but but if you put us in one room together, we're just we're just a mix of everything. And there's nothing that we can do to get away from that. And
1: unabashedly so. That's amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Proudly Asian and sharing all the struggles that we share as Asian women and also this amazing project that's coming our way. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. It was a lovely time. That's it for this episode of Proudly Asian. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at proudly.asian for more content. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Leave us a five-star review on wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and signing off for now. I'm Isabel Wong. (laughs)